Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Harley Bassman, aka the Convexity Maven and managing partner at the rapidly growing ETF firm Simplify ETFs. We talk to Harley about the concept of convexity, how investors can utilize it in investment strategies, and how some of Simplify's ETFs are taking advantage of this idea in today's market. We also get Harley's thoughts on the Fed, the economy, and where the opportunities are in fixed income today. As always, thanks so much for listening and your support of Excess Returns. Please enjoy this discussion with Simplify's Harley Bassman. Just one more thing before we start. Excess Returns has been growing a lot recently, and all of that is a result of the support from our loyal listeners and viewers. We just want to thank everyone who's taken the time to listen to us and for supporting us and allowing us to continue to reach more and more investors. If you have a minute to do it, we would ask one favor of you. If you have benefited from the podcast and could take the time to subscribe on YouTube or your preferred audio platform and to write a review, that would be greatly appreciated. Both are a big part of expanding the podcast and will allow us to continue to get great guests. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Hi, Harley. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. This is going to be kind of like a two-part discussion. We, I think we're going to first talk to you around education, investment strategy, ETFs. And then I think on the second half of uh, the discussion, sort of getting your thoughts on important macro sort of trends, things that are driving the market and the economy today and things that are on investors' minds. But I think it's just worth out of the gate here, um, you know, congratulating you and the, the Simplify team on what you guys have actually built over there. I was looking, I mean, the company is not even three years old yet. You have an impressive, interesting lineup of ETFs that are growing assets nicely. I think you guys manage over one and a half billion dollars as of today. So, I mean, congrats to you and your team. Thank you very much. I mean, modestly, what we offer is pure genius. It's very unique. We'll, we'll get to that soon. Um, I mean, I came out of retirement to join the company. I, I was employee number nine. Um, so I get to tell my kids I'm a startup. <laughs> yeah, nice. And listen, it's, it's hard. These, these finding unique, interesting ETF ideas that haven't been exploited yet that are actually working for investors. I mean, you know, I would have thought two years ago, all the ideas were already out there and have been, but, you know, there's always an investing different ways to look at the market, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, part of it is his, the market has to be ready to take the next step. Also, you need regulatory, you know, change to help. Well, you, you, you could not use derivatives until a few years ago. Well, the kind of, uh, I mean, the, the, the next door is always closed. Well, but also people have become more sophisticated, uh, more knowledgeable, more comfortable with, um, I won't say taking more risk. I will say with things that are a little different than just straight up buying an index fund. We wanted to start with you around, I think more sort of a core personal philosophy that you have written about and you've shared on your website. And that's this idea of the Maven mantra. So I, I was wondering if you could just sort of flush out what goes into the Maven mantra. Well, I mean, you know, those of you, I mean, I have my website, convexmaven.com. I publish every four and six weeks. If you want to go and be on my list, just, just send me an email. I'll add you all free. Um, you know, the Maven mantra, I, it's a lot of character matters. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, 35 years corporate Wall Street and everyone that goes down, it's always, you know, some character flaw. Let me, 
we read, you know, Shakespeare and the Greek tragedies still, you know, a thousand years later. Why is that? It's because the, the story of mankind is always the same. It's hubris, ego. And um, that hasn't changed one lick. And, you know, last week's newspaper, man, so you got to read. Uh, there you go again. Well, and so, uh, you know, good character is important. And then, of course, also um, having a life, okay? You know, go out with your family, go with your kids, go and go, go keep your priorities straight. Um, uh, on important also. The graveyards are full of, uh, uh, you know, indispensable people. So, uh, those are the concepts. And then you could see one of the bathroom.net where my, where I have the trips. I looked at the pictures. You guys have been all over the place. I was like, where haven't they been? What a great experience for your children to do all that traveling with you and your wife. Uh, we have hit all seven continents and, uh, yeah, it has been fun. And, and, uh, you should, you should go to places that are, are different and unique, um, that are going to change in 10 years. There's no reason to go to, okay, Western Europe, Paris and, and Italy and England. They're, they're not changing at 500 years, man. Go to places that are, that are on, on the cusp of something different. Well, uh, like, like, like Burma or, or, or Antarctica, things like that. And you could also do you know, trips also. I mean, we did five RV trips. Um, uh, they're easy to do. They're great fun. We, we shocked how easy it is to manage. Um, and also, I mean, going to see, you know, the, the great national parks that we have is, is important to do. And we, we just, them where there's, there's more European and Japanese than all Americans. It's kind of bothersome. Yeah. Yeah. Those national parks are such a treasure that a lot of, you know, Americans have never gotten to. Um, but I wanted to uh, ask you, how did you get the, did you come up with the name Convexing Maiden? Or did somebody name you that? Well, one of, one of the salesmen at Merrill Lynch um, uh, kind of said it. Uh, offhand, uh, quite, quite a while ago. And, and it kind of stuck a chord with me as a clever idea. So I kind of adopted that. I, I'd like to say I made it up, but, um, I did. Although the main part I appreciate because once upon a time, uh, Bill Southcard used to write a, uh, on language column in the time where he dissect you know, word histories. And he was, he was called the language maven. So I kind of like that. I'll be honest. I didn't know that you were such a prolific writer. So I'm going to, after this, ask that you put me on your list because I'm, I like to devour content and you had a lot of interesting, interesting stuff on your website for sure. Well, I, I just published last week about uh, mortgages and, uh, and REITs, um, which I still, I still love. We can talk about that if you like. So let's start sort of in a basic level. And this was more around, I guess, education. Our audience, you know, we do have financial professionals that view our podcast, but we also have a lot of retail investors as well. So can you just talk about this idea of convexity and sort of explain it? Like you would explain to someone maybe for the first time? Like mom and dad? Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> this is this me. This is, we, we use the word convexity because it has X's and a V. It sounds like fun. And then we have all the Greek letters. Let's ignore that nonsense, man. We, we just say that to mark it and pray to you. Well, um, convexity is very simple. If you have called a bet, although we don't like using gambling terms on Wall Street, but you have a bet that can pay off one point if things go up. And lose what point if they go down equal, like up and down 10 basis points or up and down 5%, whatever it might be. If you make a point or lose a point or an equal change, that's zero convexity. If you make two and lose one, positive convexity. Lose three, make two, negative convexity. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. It's just, is your return linear or nonlinear? And what that means in practice, this is what we hired all these physics PhDs in the 90s, is let's just say we have 
a, a, a bond, a, a, a bet that pays 4%, okay? And it'll go up and down the same, um, uh, either direction. If I had a similar instrument that would make two and lose one, it was clearly a better investment, all else equal. So you wouldn't pay 4% for that because you'd always buy it versus the other one. So maybe you get in pot, they buy for 375 or 350. You pay, take a lower yield because it's a better performing instrument. The rocket scientists come in to figure out free winding, free AB, 350, whatever it might be. Similarly, if you have a loses three and makes two, like a mortgage bond, well, that's worse. You would never buy it for 4% of the other one, the flat one yielded four. So what should that be? Well, maybe that should be, you know, four and a quarter, four and a half, 5%. That's where the rocket scientists come in. It's trying to figure out what their value is versus some benchmark. Now the benchmark is usually treasuries, um, which are, which, which are actually positively convex microscopically, but ignore that. Um, and we have price off that. Mortgage bonds traditionally price three quarters of a percent above treasury. That's it. They were as tight as 40, 30, 40 basis points, which is insane over treasuries last year. But they're buying everything in sight. And then the Fed stopped buying what's happened. They got as high as 175 last week when I published and said, buy this thing at the wrong price. Um, they've tightened it a little bit, but they're still the wrong price. Uh, once you back out all the risk mature, you know, other you know, things involved. And that's all it is. Um, I made a career because here is unique on Wall Street of almost always being long convexion, long option, long the um, positive profile. Um, I would buy the option. When you buy an option, you have unlimited gain, unlimited loss. What you pay for? This is why you see all these. There's massive explosion in like one day, one week option trading on the exchanges now is that we now have all the uh, millennials you know, who are somewhat proficient in math recognizing, um, maybe it's a dumb trade, but I could pay a point and make 10 and all three is one. I thought that's not insane. Um, most Wall Street people before me who were involved in options would always sell. Not selling the call, selling the put. Um, they like it because they're taking the money in. But the most you could make is what you take in and your loss is infinite or at least much larger. When you buy a junk bond, what what is a junk bond? Okay, it's a, it's a five-year treasury and a default swap, uh, an insurance, you know, on the company. And because if you, the most you could make is a hundred when you buy a bond, what you could lose is that you can go to zero, you can go bankrupt. Um, so if treasuries are five or percent, maybe junk bonds should be, you know, hitting four percent more. Is that enough? Usually it is. Right now, unclear. Um, that's what you've done. All you've done is bought a five-year treasury, the full lane, the false swap, the false option on, on, on a particular name. Everything like that. Everything is not treasuries if you sold an option of some kind. So is it, uh, just on one uh, follow-up here, is it a measure of risk and return or is it more a risk measurement? It, it, it's not risk versus, you could make it risk versus return via worries, methods, um, sharp, or which I hate, or various little profiles. But well, at the beginning of the day, um, where you do it, you, you basically 
take this instrument and run some kind of, you know, decision tree on out, you know, 10, 20, 50,000 paths, you discount them back at some rate and you get a number. And what you're trying to do is back into where the two, where the, the, the two things have an equal present value. Um, and, and using yield curve, using implied volatility, using all the other various inputs into it. But basically, uh, this is, what is the expression? O-A-S, option adjusted spread. What that means is you take whatever the investment might be and you back out all the embedded options or embedded, you know, bells and whistles that are not the treasury or that are not the S&P 500. And you back them out and you see if, if, if the value is still above or below the basic core index. And, and the idea is to go buy something that's trading above that core value. So you're actually making money above and beyond um, the value of all the options. Can you give us a few examples of investment strategies that are taking advantage of sort of this convexity concept, actual ones that are running in the real, real world? Uh, it's tricky over here. I, I, I'll give you the, 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 the negative strategy. Um, people who do, who invest in a buy right fund. A buy right is you buy the stock and sell the call. So you have limited upside, unlimited downside. Right stock can go all the way down, and the most it can go up is what, 5 or 10% we sell the call against it. Um, that, that's, a, that's a short convexity strategy. Is that a bad idea? Um, it depends. If the VIX is trading at nine, it's probably a bad idea. You're selling that call at a low level. The VIX is at 40, it's probably a good idea to go do that. Um, we have, uh, we offer a, um, an interest rate hedge product where we uh, offer a net year put option on the 30 year treasury. Well, it's not that, but it's very close to that. Uh, and there in that product, you'll log the option, you want a seven year option. That wins if rates go up and loses if rates go down. And to the extent that you have a portfolio that does poorly if rates go up, well, then you want to buy this because it's unlimited gain for unlimited loss. Uh, we have another product we offer where you put, uh, if you give me $100, you put a $98, $98 into the S&P 500 and $2 into out of the money put, so insurance policy. So in theory, you know, the worst figure here is lag by three percent, but if disaster strikes, you know, you have a you have a blanket, a big pillow you can land in. Uh, and so that's interesting over there. Um another product where you go and um you invest in uh ordinary junk bonds, like a junk bond index or ETF. Uh, and then we add in this nifty little it's called quality versus junk. It's a it's a professional product only available to the pros. But we're the pros because we have, we're the only guys out there from ISDA. ISDA allows you to trade with Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, PIMCO, BlackRock, and all, all the big guys. Um, we're all even putting all of them. And what this little thing does is the pricing between a quality credit and a junk bond credit is a little mispriced. And therefore, when you take this product from a Goldman or a Morgan Stanley, um, if Bad things happen in the credit market. This thing will actually do better and will cushion your loss. It's basically it's, a, it's basically like a long put option on junk bonds that is basically almost free. Um, 
It's a complicated product, which is why you buy it from a Wall Street dealer who manages it for you. Um, but I mean, we, 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 we have this and you put it in it, it worked. Um, so it's just a clever idea. What we really do in many respects is, uh, at Simplify, is two big ideas. One is uh, we try to add complexity, optionality to ordinary portfolio. I'm not going to tell you to buy stocks or bonds or this or that. I'm just going to say, if you want to buy it, I'll give you a better profile where it goes up faster and down slow. That's it. You, you can make your own money about the Fox and Bonds, man. You make my problem. I just make it a better return by taking derivatives and putting them into this ETF, which is basically allowed now that was not allowed five years. And the other thing we do is we go and have access to professional products via this ISDA. And so we can do, we can offer professional investment strategies to what I call civilians, not professionals. And getting your ISDA is, after Dodd-Frank, is rather challenging. Um, you can be pretty easy to do. You can be a hundred billion dollar hedge fund now and not put ISDA from a uh, Wall Street unit. We have one that we trade with um, Goldman, Lewis Family, Bank of America, and Barclays, and two more coming online. So we even footing with all the big boys. Yeah, well, what really kind of made the light bulb go off in my head about the benefits of convexity is this idea that if you have a convex product that moves against your core portfolio, and if you're willing to rebalance that convex product when it you know has its convex return while your portfolio is going down, you can increase the return of your portfolio even if that product has an expected return well below your portfolio. So the idea of like rebalancing during those events like can actually increase your return. I mean, I, I, you can tell me if I have that right, but that was really when the light bulb went, out, light bulb went off in my head. Well, you have you have stumbled into the truth uh, miraculously. So in chronically offer where we have you, you buy the the insurance policy, right? Market drops down, and there's two percent you've invested in the the puts, right? The the, the, the insurance policy. All of a sudden, it is worth five percent. What you can do is sell that thing off, make two of those five points, and rebuy new puts. Take the three points and buy more stock. And that is very clever because if you get warm and gouts back up, you instantaneously reinvest at the lows and capture that. Whereas most people will have their their equity exposure and then have, you know, they'll go to some you know, hedge fund that offers an insurance product. You know who I'm talking about. And the problem that is they might win, but your money's stuck there for two months till you can get it out. And you have to pay taxes on that gain. It's very inefficient to do that. Uh, so we've basically taken, like I said, we haven't invented the wheel here. We've taken good ideas and improved them. That's all. We, 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 can, we put them into an ETF format that you can trade on the exchange. Um, uh, point and click, really easy. And, and the strategies are relatively simple. It's just putting in professional products into something that's just so unique that it seems new, but really it's, 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 it's not. I want to ask you about inflation and a lot of other things going on in the economy. But before I do that, I, I was listening to an interview you did, and you made a statement that I thought was really interesting. So I wanted to ask you about it. What, what you said is that sizing is more important than entry level. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Ah, yeah, yeah. Okay, look, you are never going to buy the bottom unless by accident you hit the buy button instead of the sell button. You're, you're just, you will sell the lows and you will buy the highs. You can't help yourself with your creators. We, we, we're social animals. We like being together. No one wants to be different. We want to go to the bar and I'll talk about the stocks we own and you get this feedback loop. 
you really should not assume that you could mark a ton. Are there guys that can do it? I suppose so. I know all about one of them. So I, if I like an idea, you know, I go and I size it. So if I'm right, it impacts me positively. If I'm wrong, I don't go bankrupt. You know, I don't put all my money into one idea. You hear guys have bought like eight of their money at Bitcoin. Like, I don't care if you're right or wrong, it's a dumb idea, right? You know, um, I, I, my kids, two of my kids, well, I have four kids, two of them work at, uh, one's at Microsoft and one's at Google. When they get, well, when they're every year for, for their, you know, and I said, you know, you can keep some of this, but the rest of it, don't you kick on out of there, man. You work at Google or at Microsoft. Are they going to go belly? Probably not, but you shouldn't have your, all your investment money in the same place where you're working at. Um, I mean, I think we've had a company for 26 years that did go belly up, but I never thought what. I mean, Merrill Lynch stock went from 98 $2. Like, I didn't see it coming. I was like, I did and I didn't. You know, so when I got real stock, I did I was soft behind the line. Um, and just like, away. That's the idea. Size is so it'll make a difference, but not take you down if you wrong. Yeah, you know, one of the problems with oversizing a position, you know, you mentioned Bitcoin is like, it can be the most deadly sometimes if you're right. Because if you're right and you make tons of money, then you think you're really smart, you know, and then you keep this huge sizing and, you know, eventually it blows you up. So, you know, it can be like, sometimes it can be, you know, if you're right at the beginning, it can be even worse. I mean, Bitcoin felt the best at 60,000, didn't it? I mean, it was equal to a million. We all knew that. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's just comments. It's trying to go and take your ego and your emotions and control them. It's a process to do it. Here are the rules of what I'm going to do. We'll never have more than X dollars in a single name. We'll have X dollars in a single asset class. And that's the rule. And that's it. And, and, and you have the rule and, and you can't break it no matter what. I mean, there's a great quote from uh, Ace Greenberg, who was the old head of uh, Bear Stearns. The guy walks in there, uh, the trader, and says, I got this great investment. Well, I've put, I've put this in there. I, I want to put more by risk limit of this. And, and, and I want to go put more. Can I, can I, can I do it, Ace? And he goes, of course you can't. That's why we have limits. You know, that's so. I want to ask you about inflation. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big listener of your podcast and I love listening to you and Mike Green go back and forth on inflation because you can tell you guys are like really good friends, but you also can go at it aggressively on this. And, you know, we had Mike on earlier in the year and, you know, he was kind of a believer that, you know, the Fed was going to have to stop soon and then inflation was coming down. And I, I guess we got our first, you know, inflation print here that finally came down a little bit, but I'm just wondering if you could maybe talk about like, you know, your perspective on inflation, you know, where it is and where you might think, where you think it might be going in the future. I love Mike. He's, he's, a, he's a personal friend. He's a work partner. He's the smartest guy I know. Um, and, 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 and to the extent that he used the word transitory, I would just say that in the grand scheme of things, life is transitory. So it's all a matter of timing here. He was going to be right just a little early. Um, my thought um, was, was less complicated than his or, or most other people out there, I suppose. I'm New Chicago. Greg, I'm going to be in Chicago. I'm a finance guy. I, I, I you know, Will Friedman. Um, if you print money faster than the growth of the overall country, the economy, you're going to get inflation. That's it. I mean, you have good, you have money. If you have more money, then I mean, crap balance out. You have to either make more goods or make them more expensive. I, I mean, this is not rocket science. So when the Fed printed money, you know, uh, 10 years ago, a lot of us said, my God, we're going to have massive inflation. We were right, we were wrong. Did we get CPI inflation? No, we didn't. Did we get inflation? Yeah, of course we did. Yeah. Stock markets, stocks, the bonds, and gold, everything went crazy up. We had inflation in assets, not in 
wages, which was the master plan. The plan was to get wages up. That was the idea. The money just could get into the system, into bank balance sheets, um, and to festival investors. Well, when they did the real helicopter money drop, which was done by both Trump and Biden, right, when they pumped money into the system for COVID and other things, tax cuts, same thing, right? You put money in people's hands, who will spend it? Well, I, I, I mean, immodestly, I, 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 I do okay. I get, I, I get a tax cut of $1,000. I could look at spend, am I going to spend it? Probably not. The average 40%, this is a Fed study, fortune of people, households, do not for $40 in their pocket for an emergency. 40% don't afford to if their car breaks, the washing machine, the babies. I mean, this is like, this is a public policy disaster, but it's a fact also. When we go and put money into their pockets, it will be spent. And that's what we saw happen. And finally, we printed the money, and then we started directly putting it into um, people's pockets to spend. The original idea was to put money into people's pockets, into company pockets, companies would then go and build a factory and hire people and create you know, better way to live. That couldn't happen. It was a small buybacks, which is a public policy disaster also. It should be, you know, pushed back upon. Um, well, what if we put money into what we spent it? Well, it's like what we're having here is no surprise at all. Um, when's it going to end? This is tricky. Um, was it going to stay at eight, nine, ten percent? Probably not. If we can go to two, because that's really what a lot of guys are talking about, I don't think so. So is it really bullish for stocks and bonds if inflation goes to four. I don't think so. Um, but can we rally as it goes from eight to four? I suppose we can. But I mean, we don't know where the final level of inflation is going to be. And I, I think that, um, I think wage pressure is not going to abate quickly. Um, oil is going to come down and food might fix up, supply chain might fix up. Uh, we have a mismatch here in labor. Um, demographics is everything. Okay. I started the economy. Um, that's, you know, nine inches underwater and it's already built and done. We have baby boomers retiring, right? The average age is like 63, 64 now for boomers. They're all about to hit retirement age, social security age. With stocks up where they were, bonds up. All set up, housing up last year, two years ago. Boomers can retire earlier and they might well do that and they'll leave the workforce. There's great resignations that it's just boomers doing what they're always going to do. They're doing a little sooner. Millennials, what do they do? They get married, they have kids, they buy a house, they buy baby cares, they buy a car, all this buying. If you look at the inflation of the 70s, as much as we'd like to say it was Johnson, Guns, and Butter. There's a Johnson professor who's young, who basically spent the great society programs. That was when Medicare came. They spent on the Vietnam War at the time. That was not the cause of inflation. Inflation at the end of the day was baby boom generation all turning 28, 30, 32, getting married, having kids, buying. And who are they buying from? From the World War II generation, which is smaller because one, they were born during the Depression and we had many fewer babies in the Depression. And number two, they were killed in the war. I mean, they're behind from a smaller 
the producer. So the mismatch. So we're seeing the same thing now where the millennials are in hustle formation, um, productivity increasing, and supply of labor is reducing, which leads to, of course, the third rail of politics, immigration, which I've spoken about a few times, and the trolls love to yell at me about this. I'll just say that immigration is good from an economic standpoint. What is GDP? Hours worked, right? By productivity. People hold hours on productivity. This GDP, nothing like less. The U.S. has outpaced Europe and Japan and everywhere else because we are growing population. One, because we have a, a birth rate a little higher than replacement, but two, we have immigration coming in. The workforce is growing, and that's it. Now, what want immigrants coming in? I have no problem with that. Just be aware of a slower economy. If you want to make that trade off, that's okay. But but that is the choice you're making here. Well, immigrants do contribute. They may not pay taxes. It's up to walls. Luckily, but when they rent the house, the landlords pay taxes. When they buy goods in the store, there's a sales tax. They are paying taxes and contributing money into the system, just not as directly as a, as a 1040. So, uh, that's that. What do you think about the Fed's response here? You know, that's, that's something Mike has been very, very critical of. And, you know, he was also very critical of what Paul Volcker did, you know, back in the seventies too. Um, and, and I'm wondering, do you, do, I mean, do you think the Fed is, is being far too aggressive here or, or do you think their, their approach is, is pretty appropriate? As I've written about some of my commentaries, um, the Fed knew they had a problem last year. Well, last, you know, March, April, May. They knew that problem. You're already seeing CPI clipping to 5% by, I think, June. Uh, the problem is, is, it was a political one, is they're supposed to renominate Powell in August for a quick vote is done. They didn't. They didn't renominate until uh, November, get confirmed until March. And I think Keith Gelf's hands were tied. That if he wanted to be the chair again, he couldn't raise grades. Because if he did, the MMT crowd would come after him and, um, and, and, and sink his nomination. So it was basically, he, he couldn't raise rates last year like he was supposed to. He had to wait till he got reconfirmed. And the moment he got reconfirmed, boom, he took rates up. Hit the, um, it was a political issue um, that did not work out well uh, for him or the country. Well, I guess he, he, got, he got the problem of inflation. Although now he's behind the curve by nine months and he's got to catch up and he's, he's, he's got to get that rate up above inflation to create, you know, a, a, you can't have negative real rates. If you have negative real rates, the logic ends, you build a business, you hire people and expand because you can borrow money at a negative deal, effective negative deal, right? You borrow money at five, but inflation is at four, inflation is five, borrow money at negative to slow the economy. You got to get that thing flipped. And that's what he's doing well now is he's trying to catch up. Well, I think I, I, I'm not going to, you know, too much for Mike, but I suspect he will say the Fed policy is wrong right now, which true, but it's also wrong that they didn't go in earlier. So I think the Fed got themselves into a box they're trying to get out of right now. Um, will this, you know, slam us into a harder recession? Maybe. But I'm not quite sure what plan B was because as a public policy concept, if you look at the income scale, 
in quintiles, the bottom 20% makes 27,000 less. The top makes 141 and above. They're fine. The guys at the top, they can afford it. Guys at the bottom will get government help. They're 60% in the middle. We're getting killed with inflation. Their wages aren't going to budge. They're, they're, they're not getting you know big bonuses coming your end. They're, they're, their income is plus or minus you know three or four percent. We're getting killed by inflation. If we take unemployment from three and a half to five, the, 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 those one and a half percent of the people, I feel bad. It's going to be very unpleasant for them. Um, but we have to weigh that one and a half versus the sixty percent in inflation. Now. Is that equal trade? Now, losing your job is a lot worse than having inflation. So let's make it, you know, you know, 10 times worse. Okay, now it's 15% versus 60%. We still are better off creating a, a recession of some one, low down process and quick down inflation. So so uh, they're doing the right thing. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's going to be rough, uh, but I can't say they're wrong. And how do you go tell someone? When you're intentionally basically forcing them to lose their job, that you're doing it for the home team. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't play well. No politicians are going to want to But so that's kind of that. So is it, your general idea is the Fed might be higher and longer than people think, and that you know inflation might be a little stickier than people think. Is that is that fair? Yes. I I I I, 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 I think Powell said that. I think Powell said that we're still going to to four and a half five. We'll just get there in. 50s, 20 pauses, which is 75s. That's what we said in the last meeting. And I don't see anyone who said anything else from that. They've said we may have to slow down, but no one has said we're going to stop and go down. I think the uh, futures market that has us has some cutting rates uh, mid next year is dead wrong. I mean, it's possible, but I, I, I don't see that. I, I think they got us. Yeah, I think, I think they need to get headline inflation to a four handle. And core PCE to a two handle, so two point nine and four point nine, or vice versa, uh, before they start even thinking about cutting rates. Uh, is headline CPI a fair measure? Of course not. What I mean, what else are you going to do? You know, that's what everyone watches, and that's where emotions are are, are built. Um, and so I think that that's not taking. It's not going to, you know, we get to four sixty on Fed funds, and they rest. Uh, more plus or minus that level, which puts two years at you know four forty as a fine a fine ticket. Well, uh, are you going to make money? Uh, will, will there be a, a big downward in rates? I don't think so. Well, uh, but I don't think there's a lot of risk either. And uh, you know, treasuries are uh, state and local tax free. Well, California, New York, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, absolutely. It's been funny to watch though, you know, because any any time the market seems to get a different idea than what you said. It's like like they did in the, you know, in the recent weeks when, the, when we got a little rally here. Like the Fed seems to just start parading governor after governor out, you know, to try to try to get the message across again. So they're, they're obviously trying to get that message across as best they can. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, although I mean, this brings up the, the, the concept is it, it, it is um not much discussion. Um, is it a public policy good? It used to be that we didn't know what the Fed was doing. They didn't know the darn thing. Well. They would just move the, the rate by buying and selling securities, and we'd have people have to go to figure it out. These are people look at Alan Greenspan's suitcase, briefcase, see how stuck it was. Um, now they're, 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 they're you know, using the dots and everything else. I, I, I don't like dots. Um, I, 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 um, I think that Greenspan's measured pace 
from 04 to 06, when he took rates up by 25 basis points every meeting for a year, I think that was one of the key contributors to the uh, great pitch crisis, housing crisis. Because by knowing what that was going to do, you could go and level yourself up and take a lot of risk because you thought, you know, I know what's going to happen here. I'll just bet on that. You could go, if you know it's hitting rates up like 75 bits at a meeting, next meeting, then you sell the 27 basis point out of the money put. It's free money, right? Until it's not. Well, I think that measured pace encouraging risk taking and leverage and negative convexity with at the end of the day made things a lot more. And it's still going to be a drawdown. Look okay, a lot worse because of that. People over their skis. Well, similarly, what's happened right now? I mean, you know, he, he said, you know, a year change ago, we're going to keep rates at zero until early 2023. Okay, let's love her up, man. Let's go borrow money and invest in things because I have a zero plus the borrowing and so bad. What's happened? I mean, you know, it, it, it's looked after bonds and where a lot of leverage occurred. The stocks, you know, I mean, it's been a slow grind, but what was the max drawdown? 26%, something like that? I mean, you know, well, wasn't good. Yeah, I forgot about that, that thing about holding rates, you know, at zero to 2023. So that, that the world didn't actually turn out that way, um, as it turned out. Um, I want to ask you about the 60-40 portfolio, because a lot of our listeners will probably be in something similar to the 60-40 portfolio. And a lot of people are saying, you know, in this new world of inflation, you know, you can't just have stocks and bonds anymore. You need to have other things. And I'm just wondering, what is, what is your outlook? Like, what do you think about the 60-40 portfolio going forward from here? Um, as a concept, I have no problem with 60-40. I really don't. Um, the marketing of it, I do. The marketing was, don't worry, guys, thoughts up, bonds down, vice versa will soften your portfolio, uh, uh, which, which, which was true for the last 20 years. And I have some great charts uh, that I, uh, on, on my commentaries that show the whole idea of the correlation of stocks to bonds. And basically, from, you know, really the, the GFC on, correlation, you know, no where they went in opposite directions, and thus there was a great portfolio. They really both did well. What I learned about, you know, years ago, was that if we ever get rates above three and a half, four, that correlation's going to flip. We have great data. Well, Mike would say it's a good-looking chart. I'll say I think it's right. Um, that when rates are above four, the correlation flips around, and stocks and bonds go up and down together. Well, hey ho, guys, the rates just got to four. What have stocks and bonds been doing? Go up and down together. Like it's not, it's not rocket science. Why is that? When you have um, rates and inflation of low, then um, the, the discounting of, of, of future values is kind of fixed. When rates go up, all of a sudden it kind of matters. The, the PE becomes unstable. I, I don't want to get into this with this, this complete stuff. All this right stuff here, um, we're going to have the movement together. Let's go back down to two. We'll see 60-40 work as you've advertised. Could you diversify away from that? I have no problem with that nonsense. That's fine. Um, but but 60-40 is not dead. It's just it's just not going to work as advertised before. You know, you, you'll be at risk. Where is 60-40 the problem? It's all the people who used risk parity, where they used leverage, that's where you get per 64th, okay? So a lot of places would say, um, 
Well, I'm going to go, I'm going to have a hundred dollars. I'll put hundred thirty dollars in the bonds and 70 the stocks. And that because of various correlation ratios will balance things out and I'll do well. And but, you know, those portfolios have done incredible, you know, up until this year, because you basically own $200 of assets for a hundred bucks of investment. So you're going to do well. Well, if it both go down, then you heal pretty quickly. And you'll notice two prior times, the Fed kind of, you know, pulled the Fed put out of their pocket. There's no decent 2018 and March of 2020. And those were both times when stocks and bonds went down together. Levered money kind of got hurt. And so, so and when you get your margin calls and everything else, the Fed this time has kind of, you know, waved their hands that, hey guys, we're, we're going up, we're going up hard, you know, get yourself, you know, cleaned up. Well, I suspect we want deleveraging in most places, 60 40 swine. I mean, maybe it's, I mean, a little away from this, the products that we offer. Uh, I would tell someone, for 60 40 and 401k, and call me in 20 years. Hey, it'll probably be fine. Um, I, I want to ask you, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the VIX as a measure of stock volatility, but, but less people are, are familiar with the measures of bond volatility. And you actually are the inventor of the primary measure of bond volatility, the move index. So I'm, I'm just wondering if you could talk about what the move index is. I love the move, man. Uh, so we, uh, uh, we created it in four uh, was, uh, what when the VIX was coming out? Cause the VIX came out, I looked at that at the time I'm running the optional business at Merrill Lynch. And I say, this VIX is great. It's a way to, I won't say dumb down, but really dumb down the whole, you know, risk of volatility to a single number that everyone can talk about and kind of get. Um, are there bugs in it? Yeah, sure. But the, 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 the idea was so genius to do, and it was winning, to, to grab, capture the big idea. I said, I'll give you this thing with, 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 with uh, interest rates. And so we built the move, which is functionally identical to the VIX for the vault. One with options on a bunch of bonds, uh, and um, the, 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 it's actually a real number. But the move at one hundred basically means that a sixty-eight percent probability length will up or down a hundred basis points from oh. here or here from now. What's there to the issue? What's more, and right now with the move at like one fifty, or that's where it was last week, what means like sixty-eight potentially. Up and down 150 a year from now. What cracker about both the move and the VIX is you can deconstruct them into a daily number. Because the numbers are both quoted as annual. And so if I deconstruct it, like I say, I can divide by 16, well, 15.9 technically, which is the square root of 2 VIX with 2. Number of trading is current year. Well, I take 150 and divide by 16, I get like nine. That's what the market was saying. Bonds were going to do every day, close to close, five basis points. The VIX at 30 is basically saying we're going to move almost 2% every day, close to close, which is why you don't see the VIX at 30 too often because 2% every day for a month, that's pretty harsh, man. Um, yeah, and the same kind of thing for bonds. I mean, you can't move, you know, not exclusive every day for a while. Their heads will blow up their necks. Is why it never stayed high that long. Uh, the move for, you know, first 10, 15, 20 years, what you 80 and 120. The rule was to buy an 80 and sell at 120. Uh, the problem is it never happened because the move got to 120, you're hiding under your desk, calling for money. Um, so it didn't work. 
Um, but that wasn't ugly. Um, anything with the VIX makes it up to 40 or 50. I mean, supposed to go and sell it. Are you going to do it? They're not because they're in a panic that stage of the game. But I mean, the reality is, you know, that, that's kind of almost an inverse signal. Some of the VIX at night or 10 or 11. Idiocy, man. I mean, that, 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 that way too low. Um, so you should be buying protection at that stage of the game. So that, that's all there is to it. Well, the, 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 the moon's going to come down um, soon enough. I might even be down now. And I mean, I'm really down for the count because we kind of know, I don't know where the top's going to be. We kind of know somewhere around five is going to be hit unless we really get inflation accelerating up again. Well, how long? For, for, for stocks and bonds investing per se, we don't know how long it'll be there for. That's the next question we don't know. But as far as the speed, we, we kind of traveled most logistic because why you're seeing these big moves in stocks and bonds. I know there's not a direct relationship there, but does, does, is there any truth to this idea that like bond volatility might tell us what might happen with stock volatility? Like people this year have been saying, well, the move's really high. That tells us, you know, the VIX is going to spike eventually. Is, is there any relationship there at all? Or is that, is there nothing behind that? There's a lot behind it. It's not tradable. Don't trade it. But there is a grand correlation. If you look at the, the big risks in the market, uh, I will uh, say that there's duration, credit, convexity. Duration is when you get your money back, like two years or 10 years, 30 years. Credit is if I get it back. Is the bond going to default or not? And the convexity is how I get it back. It's the path of how we get gold. And those three risks, duration uh, is measured by the yield curve. Credit is measured by the spread, like junk bond spread. And the convexity is the, is the move or the VIX. Um, those all tend to go up and down together. Well, so if you look at big charts, they all go up and down at the same time. But they don't, there's no like one month lag, 10 day lag. You can't trade it. Uh, what you can do is move and do asset allocation around um, in a big way. And I think if you had a, a giant supercomputer that trade the market, you would see it move between duration, credit, and convexity in some kind of pattern go and do it. Like right now, what am I talking to do? Well, it's entertainment only, no advice. Um, but I love mortgage bonds here. Mortgage bonds have no credit risk, no credit risk. They have uh, duration convexity risk uh, because you don't know if the mortgage bond's going to pay off in a year or 30 years. Well, like, more like a, a, a year or seven years, but we'll ignore that for now. Um, and, 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 and with a move up at 150, I'm swelling up to that and I'm very high price. We're selling. Big options at a high, I'm doing a buy right on bonds basically, but the option selling is not one or two months, it's like seven years. Um, and that's why you have a spread of 175 over treasuries, is because that option is exploded in price. I want to go sell that option. I'm going to go buy moving bonds, take no credit risk, because we might sell the recession, as you feel the recession. Um, but I don't want the credit rule. I want that kind of, um, um, Big convexity risk here. Um, and I don't want to sell short day options because the volatility is too quick. But longer vol, I'm going to sell. Justin's going to ask you more about mortgage-backed securities in a second because you wrote a really good article about it recently. But just before I finish, I just wanted to ask, is there any possibility there will be like move futures 
in the future? Like, could there ever be something like the VIX or is that not possible? Never going to happen. Because the, you don't have the underlying instruments to be the hedge. You'll notice you cannot trade the VIX. You can trade VIX futures. Can't trade the VIX. Uh, options on VIX futures, right? But you can't trade, you know, the options on the VIX per se. Um, so, but you do have a very active market in VIX futures, VIX options, and in, you know, uh, options on, you know, the individual stocks that comprise your speed. You don't have that in bonds. And you have one month options on bonds, but we're not transparent. They're only institutional. You're, you're never going to have that. So, and I've been called by the CME, CBMT, ISOL. They've been calling me for, for 30 years now to do, to do you know, moon futures. Like, fuck it up. You, you, you referenced that paper where, um, you kind of walk the reader through the process of creating mortgage-backed security from the time a person sort of buys the house. Um, is that something you can just kind of explain? Sure. Um, so the housing process is, um, there's a, there's a, you know, two to six month process. So the person goes, wants to buy a house. Well, my, my, my mom's looking for a house right now. No, it's all for a house. They go to the bank, they go, they go to some institution, could be a bank, could be a broker, and they say, I want to borrow money or pre-qualify. And they figure out how much they can borrow on their income and their credit scores. Now, once they know that number, they can look for a house. Once they find a house, they say, they say I want to buy it. And they sign a, a purchase agreement. When they sign that, they immediately go back to this bank or broker and they say, I want to borrow the money. I'm locking in. And, and, and they'll give you a, a rate, lock it in. That rate we usually lock for two months. We long really two months. Well, now you got to go and inspect the property, do all this nonsense. I mean, it takes two months to go close the house, at least. You know, from the time, unless there's some quick close for cash, it's rare. Um, and then once this, 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 the house is sold, the loan closes, well, now whoever had that loan, and it's no, it's not banks anymore. Yeah, you have JP Morgan and Wells, but, but really it's mostly like, Quicken and uh, Loan Depot, um, you know, making these loans, they're not banks. They don't keep, they don't make loans. They go where they make a loan and then sell it and they go to Fannie Mae immediately. You give it to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or Ginnie Mae. They're the government agencies that go and guarantee loans. Loans go there, they get examined. Um, they're they almost always, they usually go through because these loan non-bank brokers, they know what the rules are. Fannie Mae has a set of rules there uh, for the loan to qualify. And they rarely make a mistake on that because they don't want to own the loan. Because um, if they keep that loan, they're in real trouble. Um, and then Fannie Mae looks at it, they stamp it, they put, put it together into billion-dollar pools, thousands of loans, tens of thousands of loans, hundreds of thousands of loans into a pool, and they go back, and then the bond gets sold into the market to Goldman or Merrill Lynch or Goldman Sachs, whoever it might be, they then sell it to a mutual fund, a Fidelity or Vanguard or PIMCO or BlackRock. And they, this whole thing takes, you know, three to six months to do. So it takes time for all this to happen over here. So, and, 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 and um, you know, it's, I don't know if it's dirty business, but it's what it is. The thing is this, that point in the middle where I said that the non-bank makes the loan they know where the Fannie Mae low bond trades in. That's their exit strategy. 
They then price the loan X basis points above them, which includes all their, all the fees and everything else to go do this stuff. What tends to be 75, 85 basis points. It got as wide as 125, you know, a few weeks ago, but it's back into about 85 now. And therefore that means since banks are not making the loans directly and keeping the loans on their books, the entire mortgage business prices off of where Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac bonds trade in the market. And those bonds are, they were trading 40 basis points over treasuries, went to 175 over. And that's why you saw mortgage rates just explode off the map because mortgage bonds go up. Well, Loan Depot and Rocket got to go up also. And, and, and the cost of doing all this stuff increases while well, they widen the spread from 75 to 125 over. That's why I'm not seeing a seven long over here. It's going to come back in. What I want to do now is buy those Fannie Mae bonds. I think they're the wrong price. And the lovely way to do it is mortgage REITs. To the exact same trade, we're level number one. Full disclosure, the bonds are levered, they're volatile, they can do a lot of bad things. Be careful with these things. I like them because they're a way to go and buy that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, one, sort of overwhelm, and own it, seven, seven to one levered. Well, so, so I like that. What can make this blow up? Uh, well, uh, if, if the Fed decides that 5% is not the top and they take it to six or seven, that could do it. Uh, if bond prices overall, this vacuum dropped down by, you know, 50 base points in, in, in a week. Well, that might, might be a problematic also because they, they have to manage the hedges on these things. But I, I think that, um, there's a lot of cushion now in which I describe in detail in my paper. Yeah. It, it's a risk I'm willing to go on tape for a, you know, not that in the ranch, but you know, good enough for if I'm right, it'll be okay. Um, it is difficult for civilians to buy mortgage bonds directly. Uh, the best one out there, I think BlackRock has one out there. It's a tricky one if it's the mortgage index. So the coupon on that thing now is like two and a half, which doesn't make sense because mortgage rate, mortgage bonds are like 5%. It's a five and a half percent now. So it's weird. The reason why is the mortgage bonds are all trading at 83 because most mortgage bonds are actually you know, twos and two and a halves from rates that were created that were three, three and a quarter. Well, uh, theoretically, these bonds, this, these ETFs will deliver a five and change percent total return. So you'll get two and a half of coupon and two and a half of old par from $83 press bond going up. Um, but, but th th that's, that's, that, that's what I think about this. And, and, and Rachel, you're going to, you're going to see mortgage rates. Um, the whole thing's going to, going to collapse on down, not in a bad way, in a good way. Um, because if you take rates from three to seven for a homeowner, the math is very easy on what they can afford. Um. And I wrote about this. You know, they, they, uh, take rates from three to I think I think I did three to six and a half in my in my commentary. Uh, that basically means that a house that was affordable five hundred thousand dollars is now going to be like three fifty to go and make everything else equal. An ordinary civilian, his income is not going up by a lot. We can afford two thousand a month. That's all he can afford two thousand a month. 
we 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 we, we don't we have two thousand a month. I know it's like a borrow. It's really easy. Go to your Bloomberg or uh, internet mortgage calculator. You know, back into two thousand dollars can buy this three percent, half percent. And that's why you can see the housing market grind to a halt very quickly. You know, rich guys can go and buy all the houses they want for cash, but ordinary civilians, well, this is going to really slow things down. Now, will you see housing come down by 30, 35%? No, you're not because um, you're not going to see massive housing selling like we saw 12 years ago. You're not going to have bankruptcies because people that bought houses in the last five years, they all qualify. You're not giving loads to people who don't qualify. Well, that, that, that's almost illegal. Um, and if you have a 3% loan, um, you're locked in, man. So you're not moving. Let's put a link to that. You know, you, you really do flush it out a lot more in the paper. So we'll link to that in the show notes here for people that want to read it. The title of the piece is A Deep Dive into Mortgage Bonds. It's your November 3rd um, posting on your website. So, um, Harley, thank you very much for this. We we like to ask all of our guests sort of a standard closing question, and that is um, based on your experience in the markets, if you could teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Oh, boy. I mean, I, 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 with large, I, I, I think you're supposed to go and know what you know and know what you don't know. And if you, you know, make your money doing some kind of certain function or specialty in the world, go and do that. Uh, unlikely that you're a professional stock picker that could pick single name stocks. Well, the time you've heard about the story of any stock by the taxi driver, the story's probably already over. So, um, you know, be diversified in what you do. Doesn't mean you're indexed per se, but be diversified in what you do and, and don't place all your eggs in a single basket. Um, uh, and then finally, uh, try to control your ego, which is against your nature, but, um, Try to control that. It, it, it was very hard to, especially when you're in a, in a group of people, to go and, um, you know, not everyone will them. Be careful about that. Excellent. Thank you very much, Harley. We appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.